Marcus Aurelius's meditations, how stoic are they? This is a long-standing question, but it's worth pursuing for two reasons. Tackling this question helps us make sense of this unique and fascinating text, uh, consisting of about 500 passages, making up what seems to be a philosophical diary by the second century AD emperor. Also, if we can make progress with this question, we will have a better understanding of whether the meditations can be included among our sources for Stoicism, and what caveats or glosses need to accompany the text used for this purpose. Uh, and in, in exploring the question, I draw on the, uh, the book that uh, Catherine has just mentioned, the introduction of which provides a, a fuller treatment of this topic. Item 1. I begin by identifying three strands in recent scholarship on the meditations. The first strand, um, if you look at item 2 in the handout, the first strand uh, focuses on aspects of the work which are puzzling or non-standard from a Stoic viewpoint. These aspects are explained by characterizing Marcus as philosophically eclectic or, by John Cooper, as amateurish or muddled on key points. The second strand, uh, uh, item three, exemplified by Pierre Hadot's well-known writings on this topic, stresses the importance of taking account of Marcus's project, a roughly self-directed practical ethics, and of reading the philosophical content of the meditations in the light of this project, rather than treating the work as if it were philosophical uh, doxography or uh, as an odd attempt at a stoic treatise. Ado suggests that if we read the work in this way, much, perhaps all, of the apparent oddity or eclecticism of the work from a stoic standpoint would be explained. Ado offered a rather elaborate and schematic account of Marcus's project, defined in terms of a threefold set of spiritual exercise or disciplines, correlated with lived versions of three main branches of Stoic philosophy. And he was followed in this uh, particularly by, by John Sellers. These are the items in uh, handout three. The third strand of scholarship, in four, uh, consists of work which I think accepts Ado's key premise that to make sense of the content of the meditations, we need to read this in the light of his project, but does not account, does not adopt Ado's account of that project. While accepting that the meditations constitute self-directed practical ethics, these discussions try to link Marcus's notebook in a closer and more detailed way with the full range of other kinds of evidence for Stoic theory, and not just with evidence which is linked with Ado's three disciplines. This is the approach that I've followed in my earlier work uh, and my book and also in this, in this paper. The items in five I list simply for completeness. They're important works uh, um, uh, on, on stoicism, including the, the new uh, posthumous um, collection by Peter Brunt, but they don't really fall within the kind of story I'm, I'm telling here. Well, what is the project of the work, according to me, well, here is one attempt to formulate this, and one final apology, just apologies to anyone who's heard any other of my talks on Marcus uh, for any overlap there may be between this and, and that. 
uh, and earlier papers. Well, here is one formulation of the project. What we find are repeated attempts to encapsulate in a few highly charged sentences the broad vision of human life and its larger cosmic setting offered by Stoicism. Above all, the work communicates with remarkable power what it means to try to live one's life sincerely and urgently according to Stoic principles. At the heart of the meditations is an idea central to Stoic ethics, though not perhaps unique to Stoicism. The key thought is that over and above the biological or physical and purely external or formal dimensions of our existence, we should aim to shape our lives as the expression of an ongoing journey towards an ideal state of character, understanding and mode of interpersonal relationship which should constitute our target, even though we will never achieve it fully. In the light of this larger project, Marcus addresses challenges of which he is especially conscious, but which are also universal human concerns. These are, above all, facing the looming presence of our own death and recognising the significance of our communal roles and personal relationships, in spite of our shared mortality and transience. Marcus also addresses, in his own distinctive way, broader topics on the interface between ethics and logic or the study of nature that were crucial for Stoicism. He looks for reassurance, despite some uncertainties, that the capacities of human psychology and the nature of the universe support the kind of ethical vision that Stoicism offers. This project can also be seen as a, a combination of four recurrent strands in the work. The first and most important strand is Marcus's ethical outlook, above all what one could call his core project in the meditations, living one's life as an ongoing journey of self-improvement. Two other strands fall within Marcus's exploration of the interface between ethics and the other branches of philosophy, uh, namely logic or dialectic and physics or the study of nature. And here Marcus deals in his own way with questions crucial for Stoicism, namely the compatibility of human psychological capacities and the nature of the universe as a whole, the compatibility of those with Stoic ethical ideals. These three strands inform the fourth one, which centres on confronting problematic or limiting facts of human life, physicality, transience, above all death. The ongoing project of self-improvement and the appeal to features of human psychology or the natural universe, which are taken to, to provide a supportive context for that project, are seen by Marcus as enabling him to confront these limiting facts with equanimity or even a kind of joy. So I've given two kinds of descriptions of the project, first of all as a, as a whole, and then broken down into strands. On this view, the project of the work is strongly aspirational, and is centred on the aspiration of becoming a virtuous person. It has been argued by Tad Brennan, uh, at, uh, the book in item 6, that stoic accounts of decision-making were not centred on the aim of acting in a virtuous way, 
but were characterized in other ways, such as selecting what is fitting, catechon, by various criteria. Now, whatever the merits of that view are regarding decision-making, it is certainly the case that much surviving Stoic ethical writing is centered explicitly on the aspiration to move closer to becoming a virtuous person. And the meditations fit squarely within that aspirational or perfectionist mode. Within this mode, Marcus alludes repeatedly to what were recognized in antiquity and are regarded now as central and distinctive Stoic doctrines, and ones treated prominently in earlier surviving writings that I think Marcus knew well. He does not discuss these ideas in a systematic or technical way. He is not expanding or defending these ideas for others in the way we find in uh, most other Stoic writings. He summarizes or alludes to these ideas in a way that reflects the need of his own project of self-encouragement. I'll, I'll begin by setting out some of the, in, in quite general terms, what these ideas are that he, I think he alludes to before uh, uh, trying to show how they form a kind of match set of ideas, and then I'll uh, try and illustrate them by reference to some of the meditations um, after that. So if you look at item 9 on the handout, second page of the handout, I've just set out in a very bold way some of the key ideas. One such theme um, that he alludes to is the core distinctive stoic ethical claim that virtue is the only good and choice-worthy thing, whereas other so-called human goods, such as health and wealth, are or come to be seen as matters of indifference, adiaphora. This claim is treated as central and distinctive of, of Stoicism in Cicero's De Finibus III, uh, one of the texts that I suspect Marcus knew well, and it is a recurrent theme in the meditations. The meditations sometimes, though not always, use the technical term adiaphron in this connection, though, like Epictetus, uh, whom he follows in many respects, Marcus avoids using the distinction between preferred and dispreferred indifference, uh, a point I'll, uh, I'll um, discuss shortly. A second stake theme, crucial for the meditations, and closely related to the first, is the idea that we should shape our lives as a whole as a means of expressing the virtues, by contrast with competing life goals such as pleasure. This is the key theme of Cicero's De Ficis, uh, Book 1, and it's there articulated through accounts of the main virtues, the four main virtues, and their interconnection, and through the theory of the four human roles or personae. The meditations also frequently offer short characterizations of the virtues or of sets of virtues uh, presented as goals for aspiration or normative ideals by which Marcus should shape his life. In Book 1, and sometimes elsewhere, these characterizations are interwoven with brief sketches of specific people who have helped Marcus formulate his life ideals. A third Stoic theme, crucial for the meditations, is the idea of ethical development as oikosis, appropriation or familiarization. 
The Keystoke claim is that human beings are naturally equipped and disposed to carry out two kinds of ethical development. One kind leads to the recognition that virtue is the only good and choice-worthy thing, and shaping one's life in the light of this recognition, that is the first two themes I've just noted. The second kind of development relates to other benefiting motivation and leads from instinctive love of one's kin towards a reasoned desire to benefit human beings in general, including the human beings who form part of the various communities of which you are a member, such as the state, and in which you have a specific role. There are prominent and much studied accounts of these two kinds of development in Cicero's De Finibus III, which, again, uh, I think Marcus knows well. In Cicero, these two kinds of development are presented separately, and the relationship between them is not explored. In Marcus, however, and in Epictetus, they are often coupled together, with the implication, which I think is a wholly reasonable one, that they are mutually related and interdependent. The meditations, while only rarely using the noun oikosis, has a number of relevant uses of cognate terms, such as oikeos and oikeusai. More importantly, the core idea linked with the theory of oikeosis, that whatever our natural, whatever our other natural and social, socially determined characteristics, each of us has the capacity and inclination to develop in these ways. This idea pervades the work. Indeed, Marcus's central project in the work, ongoing, ideal-directed self-improvement, depends directly, I think, on this distinctively stoic theory. Well, so far, I've focused solely on ethical themes, and the Meditations is an essentially ethical work, but the text also reflects standard stoic thinking in giving a prominent place to themes which fall on the interface between ethics and the other main branches of philosophy, physics and logic. These themes, which fall in those interfaces, include psychology and the place of humanity in the cosmos. Two distinctive stoic themes falling within this area are especially prominent in the work. One is that fundamental features of human psychology make us humans uniquely capable of the kind of development linked with the theory of oikosis. Adult human beings are not only, as in many ancient theories, seen as constitutively rational. We are also, in the Stoic view, constituted in such a way that rationality can inform and shape our entire pattern of motivation and emotion, without need or scope for separate, non-rational habituation. The latter idea is connected, at the psychophysical level, with their view that all psychological life centers on a single unitary organ, the ruling center, hegemonicon, which in adult humans is constitutively rational. This picture of human psychology is pervasive in our sources. In particular, it underlies certain recurrent motifs in Epictetus's Discourses, a work highly influential on Marcus. 
These motifs are that human beings, as rational animals, are uniquely capable of rational agency or choice, perhaps, that we can and should distinguish what is and is not up to us, epimin, and that we can and should examine our impressions before assenting to them and thus shaping our motivation. Marcus often evokes these motifs, though typically linking them with the term hegemonicon rather than prohiresis. As in Epictetus, these motifs are closely linked with the ethical themes already outlined. Marcus urges himself to use his inalienable human capacity for rational agency in carrying forward his own ethical development. So I've now got in my list down to C. The second recurrent theme in this area is reflection on the ethical uh, significance of the universe, or the whole, as Marcus calls it. There are several substrands of this theme in Marcus, but an especially important one is this. For human beings to develop towards virtue, and thus happiness, is to express their nature as rational animals within the universe. Also, ethical development consists in producing in oneself qualities, those of rationality, cohesion, sense of community, and providential care for others that are more fully instantiated in the universe as a whole. This idea is expressed in a famous text of, uh, of Chrysippus, which I'll cite later, and it's a text that Marcus alludes to, I think, more than any other that we can uh, specifically identify. So on this point, too, the meditations closely reflect mainstream Stoic thought. A theme that of the meditations that's not on the face of it so typical of Stoic theory is Marcus's preoccupation with seemingly negative or problematic features of human life, including the purely physical aspects of our lives and, above all, the looming presence of death, especially Marcus's own, which is the subject of about 60 chapters. One response Marcus makes is that recognizing events such as death as a normal part of the natural order, or as part of the providentially determined sequence, should lead him to accept them with equanimity or even joy. Making this kind of response, and thus seeing death, even, even one's own, as a matter of indifference, forms an integral part of Marcus's ongoing program of ethical development. So the responses that he makes to these themes are recognizably stoic in character, even if the stress on transience and death is more specific to Marcus. Well, so far I've just asserted in a rather kind of a priori way that the meditations centre on key stoic ideas, but I, I want now to try and illustrate this claim with some examples. And some of these illustrations show how Marcus's project in the work carries with it certain emphases so, uh, within Stoic theory. First, let's take a relatively uh, straightforward case. This is 3.6, uh, given uh, as item 10 on the handout. And in each case, I'll give both the Greek uh, and, and the English in my translation 
and I underline the, the, the lines that, that are most important for, for, for what I'm saying, but I won't always read the passages because that would take too long, so I hope you can run, run down them with your eye as I speak. Well, 3.6 then, first of all. The key, the main theme here is the key stoic ethical claim that virtue alone is good in a real sense and the other proper and the only proper object of desire and choice in comparison with which all other so-called goods such as health, pleasure or fame are only matters of indifference. This theme is especially prominent in 361 if you look at the words anything better than justice, truthfulness and so on and 364 set, set up as a rival to the rational and social good logikon, hypolitikon, agathon, anything alien to its nature, heterogenes, such as the praise of the many. So here we've got a classic statement, if you like, of the contrast between virtue and indifference. And Marcus, in line with his aspirational approach, formulates this goal in terms of the overall goal, the overall telos, taken as the focus for the shaping of his life and aspirations. Uh, see especially turn to the supreme good to Ariston 361 once you turn towards that 363 this theme is also expressed in psychological terms linked with concepts of value in 362 the object of aspiration is presented as the guardian spirit daimon seated within you who has subordinated to itself all your motives for my this is characterized in rather platonic terms, uh, he says, which has, as Socrates used to say, withdrawn itself from all sensory passions, aestheticon peseon. The allusion seems to be to Plato's Phaedo. The phrase might seem to imply platonic style mind, body, or reason, desire, dualism. But the context makes it clear that this is simply one way of expressing an ethical idea, a value-centered idea, and not a claim about psychological models. And that's a point I'll develop uh, more fully shortly. Certain details in Marcus's phraseology show that he presupposes standard stoic ideas about emotions. For instance, that they're generated by treating indifference as good, and thus by allowing ourselves to be carried away by them, a, a, a typical stoic image. Um, also, uh, that's in 365. Also 363, on the inner conflict, uh, aperipastos, which is generated if you do follow the passions. So I think it's quite clear that the psychology and the ethics are, are, are classically stoic in this passage and that the psychology is there for the ethics, actually. A rather more complex case is 3.11. That's uh, the passage on, uh, which I've given here as passage 11. This passage brings together two kinds of language which recur in the meditations. Analysis or definition, breaking things down to their component parts, and stripping things naked. While using these two kinds of phraseology, Marcus seems to have in mind the same process, namely getting to the ethical core 
of a given situation, and doing so in two, in two respects. One respect is viewing each situation as it presents itself as an opportunity for expressing an appropriate kind of virtue. For instance, uh, 3.11.3, such as gentleness, courage, and so on, a list of the virtues. This process is also presented as being effective in creating greatness of mind, megalophosune, 3.11.2. So that's one way in which it's described. This theme is also linked with, is closely linked with regarding other human beings as fellow citizens of the universe or as one's relatives or companions, 3.11.4. So that's one, one aspect of the process. The other aspect is recognizing the material elements uh, from which we are composed and into which we, like everything else, will at some point dissolve. Now, on the face of it, these are quite different points. But they're presented by Marcus as correlated, and in some sense, mutually supporting. Underlying distinctions, which I think help to make sense of this combination, include those between virtue and indifference, and between what does and does not lie within our power as ethical agents. What is involved, in part at least, is stripping away, stripping away the reputation and appeal of indifference, such as health and wealth, which are linked with the body or with material aspects of our life, or which can be presented as, as linked with the body, and revealing the ethical essence of a situation, which is the scope it gives us as agents for exercising the virtues. So that, I think, is the un implied connection. In that way, the passage illustrates the relationship between what I presented earlier as two main strands in the work, the core project of ethical self-improvement and coming to terms with the transient nature of human existence, above all one's own death. So trying to enact the virtues and, and accepting your, your physicality and, and materiality, um, transients, those are two sides of, of the same coin, as it were, for Marcus. How far does this chapter reflect mainstream Stoic theory, as found in other sources? Well, the analytic or stripping method is a theme in the meditations, it occurs in other, other passages, and it doesn't correspond exactly with Stoic categories found elsewhere, though it does evoke language found in Stoic logic or physics. It's not, not entirely... Um, it evokes the language, even if it doesn't correspond to it. But the use to which Marcus puts the method here, getting to the ethical core of any given situation, closely matches Stoic concerns. In particular, he, he deploys language which evokes the two strands of ethical development understood as oikiosis. The personal strand, leading to recognition of the absolute value of virtue, and the social strand, leading to the recognition of other human beings as fellow citizens and relatives. So the two core strands, as Cicero presents them, are, are, are well represented. Notice also, at the, towards the end of the passage, we have an allusion to indifference, here, as sometimes elsewhere, characterized as, uh, I've translated, things that are morally neutral, tois mesos. Uh, which is a term he does use sometimes for indifference.
So there is a contrast between the, the, the indifference which he refers to here and the, the virtues that he are the, the main stress in the passage. So the analytic method is, is one of the means by which Marcus helps himself to take forward the project of ongoing self-improvement. A, a, a process conceived especially in terms of the central stoic theory of oikoesis. Two distinctive emphases or tendencies in the meditations are visible in this passage and also in 3.6, the one I looked at first. One is that in his allusions to oikosis, he rather ignores the earlier stages in both cases, and he focuses on the final climactic stages. In the personal strand, he ignores the idea that progress is made by increasingly well-judged selection between indifference, and he focuses only on the climactic recognition that virtue is the only good and proper object of choice. In the social strand, he de-emphasizes the idea that virtue, uh, that um, parental love and other cooperative inclinations are shared with non-human animals. That isn't a theme he stresses. And he, but on the other hand, he focuses on the rational, other benefiting actions, including regarding other people as fellow citizens, that are characteristic of the advanced or final stages of development. In a related emphasis, he gives little or no attention to the distinction between preferred or dispre and dispreferred indifference that is a standard part of the mainstream theory. Focusing solely, like Epictetus, on the contrast between virtue and indifference, stated as a, a strong, strong contrast. The second emphasis, the, 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 the lack of interest in preferred and dispreferred indifference, has sometimes been seen, but for instance by Gert Roskam, work I mentioned in handout 7, as indicating a doctrinal adherence to the position of the early Stoic Aristo, who came to be regarded as, by later Stoics, as non-standard. For various reasons, I'm skeptical about this idea that he uses the meditations as a way of stating a kind of doctrinal preference. And it seems to me much more likely that both these emphases, these emphases on the later stages of oikosis and the lack of interest in the distinction between preferred and dispreferred, I think that both these emphases reflect the needs of his aspirational perfectionist mode, which focuses in a rather stark way on the sage-like character and, and mode of action, which is the desired outcome of his project of self-improvement. The earlier stages of oikosis, particularly those of selection between indifference, including discrimination between preferred and dispreferred indifference, are less suitable, I think, for, for this purpose. Well, from what I've said so far, the meditations may seem pretty consistently stoic. At least that's what I suggested. And it may seem, then, rather puzzling that at least some scholars have uh, presented Marcus as philosophically eclectic, or amateurish, as they have. Um, I, I mentioned the works in, in handout too. However, there are certain features of the work which are more problematic from this standpoint. 
And these fall, I think, not so much within ethics, but on the interface between ethics and other branches of philosophy, logic, and physics. In general, I think, the meditations are in line with most other stoic sources in emphasizing the importance of this interface between, between the branches of philosophy. The work also reflects what I see as the stoic, the dominant stoic way of thinking about this interface. The key thought is that the main findings, or what you might call the big picture, presented by the three branches of knowledge are compatible and mutually supporting, rather than that one branch of knowledge, say ethics, is philosophically dependent on another, say physics. This at least is the view that I'm assuming here, though the question of how best to analyse Stoic thought on this question is a subject of continuing scholarly debate. In the meditations, Marcus frequently alludes to well-known Stoic themes which fall in this interface, which are interwoven into his project of self-improvement. Two themes are worth noting in particular. One, on the interface of ethics and logic, is the striking idea of dialectical virtue, reflecting the Stoic idea that, as they put it, the wise person is always a dialectician, and that dialectic itself, if properly practiced, is a kind of virtue. Marcus, in depicting the ideal character state towards which he aspires in the meditations, quite often includes terms which evoke Stoic accounts of dialectical virtue. These include um, the two terms which I've uh, underlined in passage 12. Uh, passage 12 is an account of, the, of dialectical virtue, and the two terms uh, which I've singled out there are aproptosia, non-precipitancy, and uh, uncarelessness, anicaiotes. Uh, unusual terms which carry special stake connotations. And I've given the passage in 12, first in Greek and then in English. Those aren't the only passages, those aren't the only terms he refers to, but I'm just giving them as examples. There's a much fuller discussion of this whole side of his work in, uh, by Angelo Giovato in his book on this. So, that's one example. That's one example. So, I'm just trying to show that he's consistent in being interested in the interface, you see. So, and dialectical virtue is one of his themes. You may think he doesn't have much in the way of dialectical virtue, but that's, an, that's another story. Uh, but anyway, he uses it as an ideal. Uh, and he quite often uses these, uses these terms, and does so actually sometimes when describing particular people, um, uh, like his adopted father. Another theme already noted here, and falling on the interface between ethics and physics, is that the full realization of Marcus's potential as a rational ethical agent is identical with harmonizing his guardian spirit, his daimon, with the will, direction, or rationality in the universe as a whole. This theme is encapsulated in what is for us a famous passage, cited by Diogenes Laertius as the start of Chrysippus' On Ends, uh, and I've given it in, in passage uh, 13, first in, in um, Greek and then in English, and this passage is a favourite one for Marcus. He alludes to this passage, I think I've found about ten passages 
in book, book in just the first six books where he alludes to it, um, where certain phrases are put down. And so it's a very, it's a very, it is, it seems to me the, his favourite pa- passage. And his fondness for this passage is an indicator of the fact that in general, I think he reflects stoic, mainstream stoic thought on the interface between ethics and physics. However, there are some non-standard passages in this area, especially those linked with psychology, or some of those linked with psychology, and with his recurrent theme, providence or atoms. And it's these passages, above all, which have led scholars to characterize Marcus as philosophically eclectic, in the sense that they think that he deliberately combines elements from different theories, including Platonism and Epicureanism, puts them together, and makes up his own mixture. Now, I don't think this line of explanation is really appropriate here. For one thing, eclecticism, in the sense that I've just described, that is, deliberately picking up different bits from different theories and making your own mixture, and and calling it your own mixture, that's actually, uh, as people have been pointing out for, for quite a few years now, is actually a pretty rare phenomenon in ancient philosophy, uh, despite what people may think who only work on Plato and Aristotle uh, when they think about later philosophy. It's actually quite rare. Uh, it's much more common to, to, to describe as Platonism a thing that we might regard as eclecticism, but which they regard as you know, Platonism. Anyway, leaving that aside, it's actually... Uh, um, it's, well, not, not leaving it aside, it's a rather rare phenomenon. Uh, now, Marcus's contemporary and Dr. Galen is an eclectic. He says he's an eclectic. He says he has no allegiance and he, he picks and mixes. But he's a very different case. As regards Marcus, I think that these exceptional features are better explained by saying that he is making a particular non-standard move, and I do concede that he does make it at least one non-standard move, but he does so within the Stoic theory that forms, as I have shown, his intellectual framework. The non-standard move that he makes is what one might call premature or inappropriate moralization of natural facts, a tendency to move too quickly or without full explanation from features of nature, including human nature, to ethical conclusions. And I think it's plausible to link this dimension of the work, which I'll illustrate in a minute, with the fact that Marcus twice underlines his relatively limited engagement with physics and logic, by contrast with with ethics, especially practically directed ethics. Well, let's look a bit more then at this move of premature moralization of natural facts. Uh, and I think we see it in three areas. Oh, the scala, his use of the scala naturae, the spectrum of natural kinds, some of his examples of psychology, and the providence, and some of the providence or atoms theme, not all of them in each case. I look first at the scala naturae examples. A standard claim in stoic ethical theory, sorry, a standard claim in stoic theory, is that the distinctive features of human beings, by contrast with other natural kinds, above all rationality shared with the gods, underlies our capacity for ethical agency 
and the ethical expectations we have of each other and ourselves. And this claim is often linked with uses of the Scala Naturae. Now, Marcus seems to make the same move, but on closer inspection, he actually does something rather different. For instance, in 6.14, which I give as handout 14, he refers to the Stoic idea that all entities can be placed on a spectrum of cohesion or tension, tonos, running from physical cohesion, hexis, through nature, phusis, to psyche. In some other sources, this spectrum is extended to include at one extreme the exceptional tension of the character, the diathesis, of the normative wise person. Now, Marcus uses the scala differently in this passage. He treats the stages as objects of aspiration or attraction for different levels of people or, or for different ethical responses. And some of the correlations are really quite odd. At the highest level, the person concerned recognizes the value of states of mind that are, as he puts it, political or social and rational, and thus no longer turns his attention to those other things, 6.14.2. Thus the scala is not being used for its normal purpose in Stoic theory, that is, to locate distinctive human capacities in a spectrum of natural kinds. It's being used as another way of bringing out the absolute value of virtue, the contrast between which is described as the social and rational mind, by contrast with other kinds of uh, objects often valued, indifference, and stressing the importance of that focus. In other words, it's being used to make a purely ethical point, and one which doesn't actually depend on the scala naturae that he uses. Marcus does something similar in two other cases, 11.20 and 3.16. I haven't reproduced these, but I'll, I'll, I'll summarize them. He makes use of two standard stoic theories, that of elements and that of levels of psychological capacity, which can in principle be used to construct an account of distinctively human uh, natural capacities underlying our ethical expectations. In both cases, however, Marcus introduces moral considerations at an early stage. In 11.20, he takes the functioning of the elements in our bodily makeup as setting an ethical pattern for us as rational agents. Quite unusual move in stasis. Well, it's, it's not paralleled elsewhere. In 3.16, he correlates each of the levels of psychological capacity with different kinds of moral behavior, focusing on bad examples in each case, before concluding in a quite different way, with self-encouragement to use his mental capacities to express the special characteristics of a good person. Again, the, con the conclusion he reaches doesn't depend directly on the preceding spectrum of psychological capacities. So in all three cases, what we find is a, is a tendency to move rather rapidly from natural facts to ethical conclusions and advice without examining the natural facts closely enough or in an appropriate way so as to support the ethical conclusion reached. And that's the phenomenon which I, I think we, we do find in, in Marcus. Now, I think the move that Marcus makes in the case of the Scarland Turo can help us uh, make sense 
of some of the more non-standard features of the meditations regarding psychology or the providence or atoms theme. Marcus's move uh, in the Scala Naturae uh, case is questionable uh, from the philosophical standpoint, but it is, again, a move made within Stoic theory. It actually makes no sense uh, if you describe it as a... It's not eclecticism. It's, it's a move... All the terms of the of the move, all the terms of the analysis are stoic, but they're just not, not just not being, not there's something not quite right about the move he makes. But it's a move which 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 depends for its uh, sense uh, on stoic theory. So it's not merging stoicism and other theories, even if he's doing something uh, non-standard. Now, most of the psychology embedded in these meditations is, as I've suggested, fully in line with standard stoic thinking but some aspects are more unexpected. For instance, we sometimes find the terms uh, body and psyche used in uh, ways that imply that these entities are different in kind. We have about four examples of that. And we find recurrent use of an unfamiliar threefold division, typically between ruling center or mind, noose, psyche or pneuma, and flesh or body, or between Two of these categories are already eight examples of this of this three-part uh, account. Uh, see, for example, um, two one. This is item uh, fifteen on the handout. In two two one, the threefold division is unexpected in various ways. The normal stick uh, picture is psychological monism or holism. The psyche is seen as physical and it's identified with one of the, ma the natural elements, namely pneuma, a mixture of fire and air. The ruling center, hegemonicon, is seen as having a bodily location in the heart and as operating in and through the body. Marcus's language seems to imply a different or innovative picture of human psychology, and so some scholars think that he has deliberately adopted an eclectic position, combining uh, his normal stoic approach with a platonic-style contrast between psyche, or mind, and body, or that he is pioneering a new psychological model uh, strongly shaped by platonic ideas. However, there are several difficulties with this explanation, this the eclectic reading. For one thing, Marcus indicates that he still presupposes the standard stoic psychological, uh, psychophysical position, and he does so sometimes, when using what look like dualistic or threefold typologies. Some passages refer explicitly to psychophysical links between the ruling center and the rest of the body. Other passages presuppose that we are composed of physical elements unified by a scale of different kinds of cohesion. If you look at five 26, which is um, handout passage 16, uh, we find here slightly dualistic language with psychophysical holism. The passage refers to psychophysical movements within the flesh. They're described as, uh, as communicating themselves to the mind by the sympathy that is bound to happen in a unified body. Both these passages 2.2 and 5.26 conclude with self-directed ethical advice. In 2.2, do not let the ruling center be enslaved or tugged by each unsociable motive. 
5.26, the ruling centre should not add the judgment that certain sensations, for instance, of pleasure and pain, are good or bad. In 5.26, at least, it's clear that the agency involved is conceived in psychophysical terms. So Marcus isn't assuming that demonstrating rational capacity depends on adopting quasi-platonic dualism or tripartite typology. Well, how should we explain Marcus's use of quasi-dualistic language if we do not interpret it as a kind of eclecticism? Elsewhere, I've suggested that the quasi-dualism should be taken in an ethical rather than a metaphysical or psychological sense, following a similar explanation by Tony Long for quasi-dualistic language in Epictetus. The negative or belittling language used for parts of us other than the ruling centre in 2.2 and elsewhere is really just another way of restating Marcus's familiar con contrast between focusing your life on virtue rather than indifference. This is the contrast that Marcus works towards in 224, when he urges himself not to allow his ruling centre to be tugged this way and that by each unsociable motive, or, to be or not to be discontented with its present fate or flinch from its future one. These are all responses that he typically associates with non-virtuous attitudes, with overvaluing indifference, and with the passions that derive from this overvaluation. Similarly, in 526, the passage ends by earning the ruling centre not to add the morally erroneous judgment that sensations, such as pleasure and pain, are bad. Though in that case, uh, Marcus replaces the dualistic psychological language of 2.2 with a unified uh, psychophysical one. Now, I think the line of explanation that it's ethical rather than uh, metaphysical is the most plausible one, but I think the point can perhaps be strengthened. This feature can also be seen as similar to the premature and inappropriate moralization of natural facts, which I noted in connection with the Scala Natura. In Stoic theory in general, as Marcus himself brings out, human psychology is seen as fully compatible with the Stoic conception of adult humans as ethical agents. The ruling centre is the unifying centre of psychological life, uh, seen as wholly rational in hu adult humans and is informing all psychological functions. In 2.2, Marcus underlines or dramatises, one might say, the crucial role of the rational centre, contrasting it with other functions. This provides a kind of rhetorical shortcut, if you like, to a view of the relationship between the facts of human psychology and our status of ethical agents, which is entirely characteristic of state theory. But it's the, the mode of representing it is non-standard, but the theory which he represents is a standard one. The final passage, this is my final theme, I'm moving towards the close, is the final puzzling feature in the meditations is the fact that in about ten passages, Marcus poses the alternative providence or atoms, and thus on the face of it leaves open the question whether the stoic providential worldview, whose validity he normally assumes, or the epicurean non-providential one is true. This feature has been much discussed, and it's especially influential in leading people to think that Marcus is philosophically eclectic. Now, there are indeed some, or at least a few, puzzling passages, but the scale of the puzzle should not be exaggerated. 
Most of the passages are wholly explicable without assuming that Marcus is abandoning his normal Stoic viewpoint. A significant indicator of his thinking comes in 4.3, a passage, uh, a chapter, in which he seems to be reflecting in an unusually second-order way on his practice in the meditations. Uh, in 17, uh, uh, I give uh, two, two examples from 4.3. In 4.3, he lists a number of the standard themes in the meditations, presenting them as concise and fundamental principles which provide ethical and emotional support for him in his life. One such principle is this, 4.3.5. Will you resent what is allocated to you from the whole? Then call to mind the alternative, providence or atoms, and the arguments proving that the universe is a kind of city. This comment indicates that Marcus doesn't see the question as an open one, but one that has already been settled by arguments or proofs, of which he only has to remind himself to gain the required ethical or emotional effect. Now this comment matches some at least of the passages in which the theme occurs, especially if you turn over the page, passage 18, uh, where he appeals to first principles. If all things are not mere atoms, not mere atoms, nature must be the power that governs the whole, and if that be so, lower things exist for the sake of the higher and higher for each other. And in an analogous move, in not quite the same, but, but, but comparable, in 4.27, passage 19, Marcus appeals to an ethical principle, order within oneself, in support of the idea of order at the cosmic level, reinforced by the consideration that all things, presumably human and cosmic affairs, are bound together by a common sympathy. In three other passages, too, uh, I think uh, 10.6, also 6.10 and 9.39, I think that Marcus, while posing the alternative, providence or atoms, indicates that for him this is not really an open question. Though, though I admit that two of the passages are more ambiguous in their attitude. This leaves just two passages, actually, in which Marcus leaves the question of the correct worldview open, but then still reaffirms his confidence in stoic ethical principles. Uh, these are the passages, passages 19 and, uh, no, passage uh, 20 and 21. Uh, in 6.44, he reviews stoic and epicurean views about the invalidity, validity or invalidity of the idea of stoic providence. Even on the third view, Marcus suggests he is entitled to reassure himself of the force of stoic ethical principles. Similarly, in 12.14, after outlining both Epicurean and, Epicure uh, and Stoic positions, he concludes that he can confirm his ethical, uh, ethical self-confidence on the basis of either world view. Now, these two passages are more puzzling than the others, and I have to say, I don't find any of the various explanations offered by scholars so far as wholly convincing. But let me try one more attempt at uh, making sense of these passages. Although Marcus's fondness for the providence or atoms theme seems to show that he has an open mind on the question, his comments in 4.3 show that this is not the case. He is confident that in principle, natural facts and ethical principles can be shown to be consistent and mutually supporting in line with Stoic theory. But he is uneasily conscious 
that he himself is not fully equipped to provide the kind of analysis required because of his limited expertise in stoic physics. So, here as elsewhere, he takes a kind of shortcut. He assumes that the stoic side of the debate can be supported effectively, even if he himself has not actually supported it. Thus, he feels entitled to reaffirm his conviction in stoic ethical principles as if he had resolved the question he raises. On this view, then, the treatment of the providence or atoms themes is another example of Marcus's tendency towards premature moralization of natural facts, and the two most puzzling examples, the last two passages, are a rather extreme example of this tendency. So, to sum up, in my view, the Meditations is, in fact, a thoroughly stoic text. It has a distinct and, in some sense, practical project and purpose, but the project itself makes perfectly good sense in stoic terms. There are certainly some puzzling features in the work from a stoic uh, standpoint. Um, I think there are about 25 such passages, but these form only a small minority of the 500 or so chapters in the Meditations as a whole. And these puzzling features are best explained by seeing Marcus as making a rather non-standard move within Stoic theory, premature or inappropriate moralization of natural facts, rather than by seeing him, like his contemporary Galen, as a philosophical eclectic. Thank you.